what is the thing that you are most envious of in the world? That's a big question. It That's, is. To, to start off like that. We don't mess around on this podcast. Do you mean envious of a person? You for, pick, you pick or... anything. You pick anything at all you like. Have you asked me this because you have an answer to this? And you, and no, 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 no. I don't, I don't have an answer to this, no. no. Do you have one, though? I mean, no, I'm asking you. Okay, I see. I wondered if it was some kind of setup for like, well, mine is, I don't know, cheesy chips or something. I mean, it is a setup, but but not for that. Yeah, you're jumping the gun. You're ruining the gag. Oh, it's a joke. Oh, I see. Okay, what am I most envious of in the world? Okay, well, I don't think envy is a good quality to have, but uh, if, if I had to pick something, it would probably be where people know themselves really well and they're very self-confident does does that make you green with envy no no what a shame because elaine this episode is all about green because we have green games i see i see that (laughs) you're so unimpressed yeah, 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 because that was a deep, quite a deep philosophical question that you sprung on me. Well, that was uh, the joke, but you had to overanalyze it and then you ruined it. <laughs> well, you know, that's me. That's what I do. I overanalyze jokes and ruin them. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with Elaine and... Me, Efka, and also I have a dog on my lap, so Bessie as well. On today's episode, we'll be protecting the wilderness of the future in Earthborn Rangers, gathering the most valuable trees in Forest Shuffle, and talking with a specialist in oxygen in Plantanubo. Plus, we have an interview with Sunny Lou, whose comic the Singapore Arts Council withdrew funding for, for potentially undermining the authority of legitimacy of the government. So you know that's going to be good. You know, I say that in the intro of the interview as well, but oh, they'll get a double dose of... Well, yeah. we, we should really talk about these things, shouldn't we? <laughs> First, though, we really seem to have sparked something when we spoke about contentification in a previous episode. Oh, here we go. So here's one of the emails, and we'll do a few more as the podcast goes on. Andrea writes... I think you are onto something very true when you talk about contentification. My idea is that simply Kickstarter and crowdfunding in general is purely a marketing tool. Its overwhelming success in being a main funding source for many publishers has created an imbalance that causes the marketing decision to affect production and even design decisions. I guess I'm assuming that before Kickstarter marketing came into play, on a later temporal stage, after or towards the end of the production and design stages, and I might be wrong. But given your parallel of Kickstarter contentification as compared to internet media contentification, I see crowdfunding as the new medium that is strongly shaping its message. I agree. And actually, I'm not going to add much to that uh, because I'm just going to let that stand because I think that's that's a good thing to say. Uh, But also, I did want to say that uh, in the last episode, we said, oh, you know, in our next video is gonna you know talk about that specifically well two videos later it's still not that next video but the next video should should actually be the video where i talk about that so uh stay tuned for that i guess let's talk about our first game Earthborn rangers comes from publisher earthborn games by designers andrew fisher brooks flogger livet andrew navarro adam sadler bradley sadler with art by joe banner and evan simone I think a good place to start would be to say um, 
you had um, some expectations of what Earthborn Rangers was going to be, and they weren't quite met. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, I don't know where to start on this. Um, I think I just got a very different impression. I really, really, really wanted to like this game because I love the ethos behind this game. I love the idea that uh, everything is sustainably made, um, as Andrew spoke about in uh, an interview, the interview in the in previous uh, podcast episode. Uh, I love the idea that you're playing these forest rangers that are trying to help the environment and work with it, right? I, li- mm. I like the ethos of this very much. I just thought that this... This gave me the vibes when I read up about it of of Artisans of Splendent Vale or maybe even Oathsworn, something that is freer than Oathsworn, but where you're travelling around, uh, helping people, doing different things, and the decisions that you make change the future of the game. Well, let's just be clear, it's nothing like either of those <laughs> games. I mean, the vibe maybe matches a little bit Artisans of Splendid Vale, because, but, but that was a lot more character-driven, whereas this is a lot more emergent narrative-driven. Uh, so, like you mentioned, Earthborn Rangers is a game where it's set in a, I guess, a post-apocalyptic kind mm. of setting would make sense, but one where Earth is regenerated and uh, the communities of uh, the valley which is where it's like the narrative is located you know they, they've kind of more in tune with the world uh, and and approach it in a more sustainable way right uh, but of course you have these echoes of past technology uh, that has been created maybe even in our future you know and 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 how it works in this world uh, intermeshing with a very nature driven environment um I like that. I I think it's a very cool vibe. But mechanically, it's a lot more similar to something like uh, Lord of the Rings, the living card game, or Arkham Horror, the card game. Uh, And it is primarily driven by that idea of you constructing a deck Mm. um, uh, from cards, much like you would do in Magic the Gathering, say, or any of the other competitive uh, card games or living card games or any kind of derivative but it is a cooperative game and it is a campaign game the one thing that really appealed to me uh, from a kind of a idea standpoint is that you don't have any real set objectives for Mm. how you succeed or how you fail you just pick what you want to do and you progress so we've played this is a first impressions we've played a few games and also the prologue uh, and we got a good feel for you know how this game shapes out in broad strokes and 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 how you maneuver through it uh but definitely not enough to kind of put down a very concrete review and a concrete opinion and and i think we both have some thoughts i think you are a lot more negative towards it than i am so let me begin with what i've really liked about the game please do um so i think whilst mechanically the ethos is 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 this you know kind of card thing and you know you you build your deck you draw some cards you see if you can achieve what you're trying to do by playing cards and then there's a push your luck mechanism uh but the narrative ethos of it is much more akin to something like Sleeping Gods, mm. where you're also given a big map and, you know, the map says, hey, go there and do whatever. And then there will be narrative prompts. Right. Um, so that's also present in Earthborn Rangers. But uh, there is much less narrative prompts and there is much more that sort of emergent narrative that just happens 
through the cards that you interact with in the game. So anytime your turn, your round, a round begins, you will draw from this constructed path deck, which usually corresponds to the type of terrain that you're traveling in. So if you're traveling through forest, you will shuffle like all the forest cards into this path deck. But it also depends on the location that you're going to. So if it's just like a regular location, you'll uh, shuffle in three random cards from this preset big chunk of cards, and you might encounter these people or locations or whatever as you're exploring, you know, the path. Uh, but if you're traveling to a notable location, uh, then it will have the cards from that notable location. So it will have various characters and buildings or what have you that you find in that place. Um, so each time around begins, like I said, you do draw these path cards, one per player. Um, and there is a potential to draw more as well. And they could be things like a wall hunt, which is just like a wolf, uh, <laughs> but future wolf, you know, uh, uh, or it could be a deer or something like that. And and they have various tags, like, for example, so the wall hunt would have a predator. predator. Yeah. And the deer would have prey. Right. And. The clever thing about this game is that so the these enter various areas. Some of them might be in front of you, which means like you're sort of responsible with dealing with it. And some of them will go along the way, which is where everyone can interact with these. Not so much that they interact with these, but that they affect everyone. Uh, and then when you're trying to do something in the game, often what you will do is tests, which is that push-your-luck mechanism. You will spend some energy that you have available based on who your character is, and there's four types of different energy. Uh, and like you, stats. Yeah, yeah, like stats. So there's spirit, there's awareness, Focus. you know, things like that, yeah. And you'll also be able to pitch some cards from your hand, a la Arkham Horror the Card Game, uh, if they also have matching stats. Uh and uh, then you will draw a modifier card and it will affect those stats based on which card you've drawn. So it might have a minus two, minus one, a zero or a plus one. Mm. And then you will see whether you succeed at the thing and how well you succeed. And it will do various things. So let's say like we've encountered a predator, right? I could be like, hey, do you know what? Let's make friends with that wall hunt because, you know, it's nature. We don't have to just kill everything in sight or be mean to it you know we can try and tame it and say hey we're friends you know so uh you could take the soothe test which you know let you use your spirit and uh various cards and you, you know you could put progress tokens on it and if you put enough you would clear it but even if you don't you've you know interacted with it enough to move towards the progress of you know soothing this beast uh, but then once you draw the challenge card, it also has these triggers for various events that appear on these cards. And this is, I'm getting to the cool part. I know it's a belabored explanation, but I'm hoping I'm giving like a good impression of what happens in this game. Um, so all the cards that are in front of you or in front of all the players that match this challenge trigger and have an effect, they will resolve. So for example... If there is a prey card and its challenge thing activates, it says, oh, if there's a predator, that predator, you know, uh, attacks the prey, but it becomes exhausted. So suddenly the predator is no longer in your way because it jumped to attack the deer and now it's like, you know, trying to chase it or whatever. So it's no longer bothering you. And that's kind of how this emergent narrative in the game happens. There's a lot of 
weird various triggers that will happen and interact with things that are in play and they will all behave with each other one of the really cool things in the prologue that happened was uh we were being escorted by this um I guess ranger captain. So we're rangers. We're training to be rangers. We just we just basically graduated to be rangers, and we're we're kind of like a mentor. Yeah, like we have a mentor, right? And there was a predator like nearby, and uh, because because she was around, right? She was like, you know what? I'm just gonna shoot this predator away, right? Like I'll deal with this for you, and and that was like a neat little moment of a thing that just happened that didn't necessarily have to happen but it was part of our game and part of our story and so things evolve naturally in this game in a way that i haven't quite seen in other games before and i think that was a really big part of the draw and the appeal and the other thing that i liked is that sort of you know you kind of do whatever you want to do thing you pick what's what sounds interesting to you, like you have some missions, but you don't have to follow them. You can go off on your own and find your own missions and do different things. Mm. And I haven't explored much of that aspect yet, but I'm, that's one of the things I'm looking forward to coming back to Earthborn Rangers and finding more how that works. What, just going, choosing which different location you want to go to and... Kind of not following the main breadcrumb trail and just exploring... Doing the side quests. Yeah, do, exploring mm. the world and, and kind of seeing what comes about from that. Yeah, um, let me also say the things that I liked about this game. So one of the things I really liked was that quite often when you have a narrative in, in a game, uh, in my experience, the narrative, you don't have to pay that close attention to it. It's just giving you some kind of flavor to what's happening and giving you context to what's happening which is fine <laughs> but in this you really have to pay attention to what is being said because because there is no specific path that you are told to go down or specific quest necessarily that you are told to do the narrative is giving you like hints of okay you could you know, maybe we could go to this place, you know, like you might find this thing in this place, you know, it's that yeah. kind of where you have to really pay attention to what is happening. Do you know what was funny when we were doing the pl the prologue, it was the opposite of that. It was, it held your hand very, well, very yeah. tightly. Right. And then suddenly there's this moment where it just drops you from the nest. <laughs> right. And I was not ready for no. it. I was like, and you, I don't know what to do. I was like, well, it says this. And then she was like, but it doesn't say what we should be doing. That's like, it's fine. This is what it's saying. You know, I was like this this. ready to go look up uh -huh. FAQs. You were. You're and... like, I'm going to BGG. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, it's fine. Like, this is all right. Oh, uh, it was we, hilarious. We can handle this. Yeah. Um, I also really like that there's not a set path and that there are side quests that you can be doing simultaneously with the main quest. So you could have the main quest, but then also go down these little other paths and not necessarily have to complete them in a linear way. I, I like that. I, I like this kind of sandboxy type thing. Going I mean, it's it. a very low stakes game so far. There is, there isn't like this uber bad thing that's happening that you must stop. Just... I'm, I'm going to spoil the very first quest that you get, but it's fine because you, it's spoiled by the learning materials anyway. So you will know going in. But your very first quest is to go and hand out some cookies, right? <laughs> That's all you're meant to be doing. 
Yeah, if you watch the tutorial videos, it's yeah, it's in that. Which so. I recommend anyone do. <laughs> I'll get more into the rules later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, hand out some cookies and it kind of gives you the vibe immediately that like you're you're not really here to solve the world's big problems. You're a ranger. Your job is to literally go about communities and see who needs what done, right? So if if you must fix someone's shack with, you know, a two by four and some nails and a hammer, that's what you're going to be doing. Uh, and I that's not a quest that is in the game. I made that up, but like, like that's the vibe we I'm getting. We from don't it. know that yet. Yeah, it could be. It could be. It, it did kind of remind me a little bit of those those cozy video games where you're not really. There's no like set definitive thing that you must be doing to fight a big bad or whatever. You're just bimbling mm. about doing various things. But like you said, it's first impressions. So that might change. I don't know. Um, but I also liked the way that you play cards uh, and the, the way the cards interact with each other changes constantly as you're going through the game. I thought that was that was very interesting. However, however, you were leading up to this. This <laughs> This, I think this is a good game. This is not a game for me um, because <laughs> I don't have a lot of patience uh, when it comes to games. I want to either learn the rules myself or someone teach them to me and then we play. Yeah. That, that's how I like my games. And, Bread and butter, right? And you want the gratification to come immediately, right? I, I think no, you do. It's not, it's not even gratification, but it's it's feeling like I'm doing something, progressing with something. Um, and this involves a lot of deck building. Uh, it involves a lot of thinking about how you're going to choose your cards and what you're going to do with these cards but you don't actually really know when you choose the cards what they do or how they interact with each other so I found that really really hard it's a bit like when you have to choose your GCSEs when you're 14 and you have to know what you want to do for the rest of your life sorry uh, just just to be a pedant mm, an annoying pedant uh -huh. I will clarify for people listening at home that when you said deck building, you don't mean deck building the mechanism. You mean building your deck Thank as you, you would in a yes, in a sorry yes, that style I, of card I game. I did mean that. Yeah, yeah, building a deck rather than deck building. Sorry, but when you are building your deck up and you're choosing the cards to put into it, uh, you don't know how to play the game yet. Yeah. So you don't know what's going to be good, what's going, and you can change that. Um, you can. As you go through the game, you can rebuild the deck and put different cards in. And the game will, it says, reward you with, with specific cards that you can then put into your deck too. But I just felt so very lost and tired by this. Uh, you, you, I know, really like building a deck. Mm, I found it somewhat unintuitive in terms of what makes a good deck in this game. I found it very hard to gauge how to build an effective deck. Mm. And I think um, I would recommend if you're playing this for the first time, uh, there's a, a website for this uh, game. I think it's Earthborn. You just Google Earthborn Rangers. You'll mm -hmm. find the website. Uh, but Earthborn there is Games. Pro it's probably on that, right? Yeah, so there is a uh, four pre-made characters available that for you. That would have suited me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> however, frustratingly, uh, you have to play through the prologue. 
to get like with the story, right? And honestly, I would also recommend playing the prologue yeah, yeah, yeah. because it gives you an idea of how this game actually shakes out. Uh, because it's hard to gauge that from the rulebook and the learning materials. Uh, so it forces you to build your deck, right? Uh, as as you're experiencing this game. And it kind of does it in a neat way because it's like saying, hey, who do you think your character is? And what would they put in this deck, right? What does, what represents them? And conceptually, I think that's really cool. But when th this, this game doesn't have an intuitive mechanical flow, uh, mm. and it takes you a few sessions to pick up on how you actually effectively do things. Yes. Yeah. So, for example, there's a mechanism called Scout, uh, which lets you look into the path deck uh, for however much you succeed. Let's say I succeed with free effort and scouting. That means I can look at the top three cards of the path deck. So, remember, the path deck is like where most of the bad stuff, like the predators and the obstacles and all of that lies, right? And then you can put them at the top or the bottom, and then you have to draw a path card. Now, generally, you don't want to draw a path card because, again, that's another predator or obstacle that is in the way. But also, the things you often need to find for missions are in that path, are in that path deck. Yeah. So, actually, scouting is a really important feature of the game because it lets you put away the bad stuff and draw out the good stuff that you want to see. And that wasn't something that was immediately apparent to me when I was building the deck and I thought, I'm not probably going to need these. And then immediately realized, oh, wait, no, I mm, really need mm. these. Uh, and that's just like the top layer of where I find, um, you know, the uh, building your deck part unintuitive. Uh, there are many more nuances that you discover through the gameplay that you're like, oh, no, I, but these I cards are not actually useful to my character. I need these entirely different ones. Uh, and again, the game does let you rebuild, like you said, but just learning what makes an effective deck is a long path. But do you think it's only feeling unintuitive because it's a game that we haven't experienced a lot like like imagine the first time you played like dungeons and dragons or something and you had to build a character mm -hmm. you had no idea what wisdom did you had no idea what strength did apart from maybe maybe that's the fighty one whatever you know you don't know what anything does and why it would be good and why you would want to put stats in this or that or the other right yeah so, i think that's part of the appeal if mm. if you're if you're gelling with that idea of a game that is like, it's not that it's easy, but it is low stakes, mm -hmm. right? And and it's definitely driven on exploration. And it isn't intuitive mechanically, but, you know, you enjoy untangling mechanisms. And you enjoy building a deck to help you untangle those mechanisms. I mean, I think this might be your favorite game, right? This I think <laughs> this game is definitely someone's favorite game because it's built and designed for a very specific person. I match some of those criteria, mm. but not all of them. I agree with you, right? Uh, and I think if you go into this game knowing that that is what you're going to be doing for the first two hours is just building your character and thinking about what cards you want to put and what, what is their personality? What is this character? What do they do? I'm a shepherd. Um, <laughs> I'm a shepherd in the valleys, Yeah, uh, which I thought was quite cool. Uh, then I think I think I didn't go into it with the right mindset. I went into it with, come on, let's play this game. <laughs> right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think if I had gone into it knowing that, okay, this is what we're doing, because the thing is you build a little bit, play some of it, 
build a little bit, play some of it. And I, I just found that very disjointed and I just didn't gel with me. But I, I totally agree with you. I think this is going to be a brilliant game for some people. Uh, a note on the rules. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> I did this the wrong way around. I read the rule book twice because I felt like I needed to read it twice because it just was not cohering into a picture. And then I watched the video tutorials. For anyone learning this game, I would recommend watch the video video tutorials, then read the rule book, then actually attempt to play. Um, because y- you need both. There's a few bits in the video tutorials that are not mentioned in the rule book. Mm. And uh, the rule book does a lot of stuff where it explains the same concept about four times, but only one of those times it explains it fully. Uh, and I-, I found that incredibly frustrating. And not only that, I found that actually, whilst you feel like you've internalized the rules, when you play because the system is quite unique and and honestly quite hard to describe especially in a podcast Mm. you you end up with rules vagaries that are quite nuanced and specific that are not properly explained in the rules material i think this game needs an faq yeah like really really needs an faq uh because and maybe a glossary yeah some of it is just not very clear and some of the answers the rule book simply doesn't provide mm. um i i found that quite frustrating yeah i think that's always frustrating in, in a game when you're constantly going to bgg to see if someone else has asked the same question as you that it, it disjoints the game you know, mm. and that makes it less smooth so um i want to say one thing that that is i'm gonna not do a spoiler mm-hmm. but it's something but it's going to come across as a little bit of a spoiler but it's not really uh but it's something i wish i'd have known going into this game this game is like the real world right so so when you are doing quests they might not be as easily fulfillable as you first thought Mm. there there i hope <laughs> did that make sense yeah to you? it did make sense there were certainly some moments where i was under the impression that we've done everything that we needed to do yes. <laughs> uh, but actually not quite and then it turns out that the not quite part is not at all insignificant right and, yeah and and a little bit arduous it's you know? not just like you're gonna read some end completion quest text and sometimes you will but mechanically you might not be quite at the place where you thought you needed to be yeah that's what i mean yeah it's it it was quite strange to adapt myself Mm. to that and again it's it's managing expectations i wonder like how i would feel about it immediately the next time i play this after recording the podcast yeah Mm. probably quite differently but it was a weirdly skewed first impression based on just how unique this game is and what it's trying to achieve and it's sometimes when these ideas are really quite out there you're gonna butt heads with with those ideas until you know either the game molds into what you want it to be which is not very likely or you mold yourself to what the game wants you to be which is Let's face it, what's probably going to happen, right? Or not, you can just get rid of it. It's up to you. It's your game. Do what you like. 
We've had an email from Mike who says, I wanted to first say I really enjoy your content and have enjoyed your time you allocated within your podcast to topically chat. I really like when you give yourselves the time and space to talk through an in-depth topic. I did, however, really struggle with this week's contentification segment. I emailed just to throw some thoughts around and explain where I was lost in your chat as you mentioned more content on It May Come Out on Monday. Well, it hasn't yet, but it will. Your opening segment on this topic emphasised how you are not making content and you broke down several steps you take and how each one of those is a specialised skill. But all of the steps you described were aimed towards making a thing you hoped audiences would consume. You were describing how you create a thing that an audience can receive. You described the process of content creation. You described how you are indeed content creators, something you seem to want to distance yourself from at the start of the segment. Content became this taboo thing that you wanted to stay away from, but I don't really know why. Content creation has a negative stigma but isn't inherently bad. You go about it in a moral first approach as you explain at various points in videos and podcasts. I don't know why content was used as an icky word when that is exactly what any board game media person is creating. In this instance, I consider content to be something made by someone to be consumed slash enjoyed in some form of media. I fail to understand your segment on how board games are becoming content. I don't feel you really got across what you thought content was and how board games had become it. You mentioned that some Kickstarters had competitive, cooperative and solo modes. That is the demand of the market. The pandemic brought solo gaming into the spotlight and publishers woke up to the solo market being a big driver of sales. A board game is just a game. It's just a thing to pass the time. Some of us, like me, really love spending time this way. But I don't know why you made everything seem so negative or the evil forces in the background were intoxifying the very air us board gamers breathe. Actually, lots of games get released and if the market likes what the game offers, then it is very profitable and similar games get made. I don't think it is much more nefarious than that in general. Yes, there are huge plastic mini games about, but they aren't bad and they are just what a lot of people enjoy. I also had very little idea what you were referencing when you spoke about games being advertised as the last game you'll need. Games are a product a company makes for profit. Yes, Kickstarter is awash with plastic miniatures that give adults the toy factor and makes them spend lots of money. But that isn't board games becoming content. That's just a marketplace seeing what sells and offering it to the consumer. Board games have always been this. A designer makes a game and hopefully a publisher picks the games that sell lots of copies. I really enjoy your stuff and don't want this to be a critique. I just wanted to share that after listening to that segment three times, I wasn't really sure what point you were trying to make. It really just sounded like you were bouncing from thought to thought about issues you had with board game marketing. I write as I know you have a video coming out Monday and I just wanted to give you feedback that there are clearly some really good thoughts you both have about this area, but I think you need to be more specific and really explain what contentification is to you and what board gaming was like before and after its effects. I really failed to identify what this evil contentification thing was and why I should be annoyed or thrilled by it. Well, thank you, Mike, for your thoughts and concerns and email. Um, I guess this is a prime example of my issues uh, with it. Uh, but, but here is a person who self-admittedly enjoys our stuff. Didn't mm -hmm. say content, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Although content is what we do, apparently. No more. Just just content. We can mm -hmm. only just be content to this person. This person will not give us the gratification of 
allowing ourselves to call ourselves even podcasters or reviewers or uh, editors or writers. Uh, I'm not saying we're the, you know, artistic epitome of any of those things. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, what we do is some sort of a high art or whatever, right? But but if you if you watch a person who say presents a recipe that they've created for you know a, a dish or whatever, uh, would you call them a cook or would you call them a content creator? Right? I would call them a cook. I would I would give the person the benefit of the doubt, not not even the benefit, but but the graciousness of of letting themselves call themselves whatever they want, especially when they call themselves after the thing that they do, which is, you know, in the example I gave, a cook, right? But as as soon as they put a recipe on YouTube or on Twitter or on TikTok or whatever, do they really have to be a content creator or can they just allow, can they just be allowed to call themselves a cook? Can I allow myself, you know, to to call myself a reviewer, for example, and not a content creator, which is a demeaning word? And it's demeaning precisely because, well, you know, a lot of social media platforms want us to demean ourselves. They want us to be less than what we are. Why is a person who's plumbing as a job allowed to call themselves a plumber? But I'm not allowed to call myself anything more than a content reviewer because content is all that we do. And all we do is for you to consume it. No, thanks. That wasn't the only email that we had uh, that said a similar similar things. So sorry to pick on you a bit, Mike, to read your one out. Um, uh, We had a few emails that said similar things. Um, And I think I I agree with you, Efka, that that we should be able to not just fall into an amalgam of content. Um, Because if I want a board game review, then that's something very specific. I don't want a a first look at a lipstick. They're, mm. they're very different or things. Even, or even if you're, you know, if, if you're into board games, right? A person who makes videos that are playthroughs are different to a person who makes reviews about board games, right? Or teaching tutorials, how to learn, you know, to learn to play a game. And, and sometimes these things overlap. Sometimes someone will make a playthrough and give a review or do a tutorial that is a playthrough, right? But can we just not, please, be relegated all to the same thing? Because when specificity dies, then then the point of all of this dies. I don't want to make content. You know, I want to do what I do, and I want to be recognized for what I do. I'm not saying what I do is some sort of a marvelous, amazing thing, but please give me the decency of just this normal human thing that where a person is allowed to call themselves by what they do but my point really was that um when you group everyone together you don't evaluate them on their own merits so so if you evaluated someone who uh did a first look at a a board game or a lipstick or whatever on reviewer like as a reviewer it wouldn't be a very good review Mm. But they might be really good at getting across the excitement of what is in that box or whatever. Uh, Or if you just called uh, a musician a content creator, then Mm. are they jazz? Are they pop? Are they rock? What are are they? Like, it doesn't tell you anything about them. 
Uh, and so you evaluate people on the same merits when you really shouldn't be. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, there I is do, a danger I do. Yeah. of grouping people together and, and not giving them the benefit of what they are strong at. Yeah, because you're then empowering the people who make the money off the person doing the thing rather than the person yeah rather than the person doing the thing right so uh if if you do actually as you say enjoy what we do you know please give us the graciousness of allowing ourselves to call ourselves what we want rather than what the general bland label is Still to come, we have Plantanubo and our interview with Sunny Lou. But now let's talk about a game that is the first in a line of lookout games sporting the lookout green line label, which I think sounds like a bus route. Forest Shuffle comes from publisher Lookout Games by designer Kosh with art by Tony Yobert and Judith Pieya and graphic design by Clemens Franz. Elaine, there's a bunch yeah. of dead bodies on the floor and we need to figure out who killed them. That's not this game. No, that's not this game, but that's what this game has done. There's a bunch of dead bodies on the floor. Okay, yeah. Their names are Wingspan, oh, Terraforming see. Mars, uh, um, <laughs> uh, Ark Nova, Earth. They're all dead. The culprit, Forest Shuffle. I Okay, not to be coy, um, I don't think this is necessarily going to be true for everyone listening, but I think this, at least Wingspan, this game just very confidently surpasses, in my humble opinion, in every regard, uh, because the experience that it offers is similar. It is a Race for the Galaxy-style tableau builder. Now, having said that, it is much lighter than almost all of the games I mentioned, maybe about Wingspan level, but the decision space and the fun and interaction and that that general tableau buildy goodness. Oh my, Forest Shuffle, I think it's a star. I think this game is great. I think I'm in love. I like it. Did I mention I enjoy Forest Shuffle? Uh, it's true. <laughs> Once or twice. Uh, but you said this may not be true for everyone. Yes, okay. So, so let's not pretend that your word is... No, it's just my word. word. It's just how I feel. I, okay, I, I think... Um, so to give a broad impression for those familiar with the genre, right? Uh, what it doesn't have is the sort of added, added craft that games like Ark Nova and Earth add, where it's not just cards, but it's also all these other mechanisms. When you say craft, you make it sound negative, though. Well, okay. And I, in my opinion, it is unnecessary because, again, when I play Ark Nova, it's, it's interesting. It's a good game, you know, because there's... The cards themselves, you know, where you're like kind of building the zoo and there's these like hexagonal Tetris pieces that, you know, you're putting together to make sure the enclosures are next to each other. But the cards themselves, I don't find that fun or interesting. Like they have a lot of abilities and there's certainly ways of being good at that game. But like the core, that that card core isn't as good as I want it to be. And card core. Yes, card core. <laughs> card core. Yeah, which is, you know, you always look back to games like Race for the Galaxy and you go, why wouldn't I just be playing Race for the Galaxy, right? Uh -huh. Because, like, the card play is so satisfying. Uh -huh. And I look at Forest Shuffle and now I go, why wouldn't I just be playing Forest Shuffle? Because the gameplay is so satisfying. 
Now, I'm not saying this is better than Race for the Galaxy, because it's hard to do that, but it's certainly a lot more approachable than Race for the Galaxy, because this game is very easy to understand, but that decision space of like, oh, which cards do I play, which cards do I leave, you know, is really, really fun. But if you, in case you're not familiar with any of the games that I've just been discussing, I'll give you a brief overview of Forest Shuffle, and hopefully you kind of understand what's going on. So, you're building a forest. Um... N not literally, not like with a hammer and nails and a two by four. You are Wait, what? No, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you be building a forest with tr trees that you've chopped down to turn into planks, and then you're building? Tr what? I know no. it's 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 like feeding a cow a burger, right? It's just not okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, the the cards are you know they're made out of paper. They are, which are made out of trees. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, you're building a. A tableau of cards that represent a forest. There you go. Right? Uh, so uh, there there are sort of like basically two types of cards in this game. There are tree cards and then there are not tree cards. And when they're not tree cards, they are animals or like mushrooms or insects or butterflies. You know, all kinds of things that live around trees. Moss, I think, is one of bats. them as well. Bats. Yeah, I love bats. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's moss. Yeah, there's moss, Grubs. right? So, so it's fauna and flora, basically. They live around trees. There's no flora. Moss is flora. Is it? Moss isn't a... Pl is, no. What is moss? Isn't, isn't moss one of those things like a mushroom that isn't one or the other? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, we're getting into some weeds. Oh, funny. Um, so, yeah, so there's two types of cards. And on your turn, you can either play a card or you can draw some cards, Ticket to Ride style, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there's some clever quirks there that are happening that I'll get in, into just a little bit. So, uh, first of all, to play any of the non-tree cards, you have to have a tree to play them to. So when you play a tree, right, you, you pay for the card's cost with other cards. So that's fine, you know, you just discard cards from your hand. So if a tree costs two, you pay, you discard two cards. Right, sounds simple. You place the tree, right? The tree might have some sort of effects. You trigger them. Cool. Might have some scoring conditions. Like, for example, there is... Um, what was the tree called? The I can't remember. We were tr both trying to get chestnut? it. Chestnut? Yeah, it was a chestnut. Nut tree. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, it was a chestnut. So if you have one chestnut, it's a point. If you have two chestnuts, it's three points and so on. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Sliding scale, right? Uh, birches, you want to have at least four or something like that. Then they'll each score you five points or whatever. You know, they have scoring conditions and various effects. Uh, but then you have these flora fauna cards. Maybe not flora. Depends on the status of moss. <laughs> uh, that you can play tucking them underneath a tree. And the clever bit is that each of these cards is sort of split into two parts. And it's split either horizontally or vertically. Elaine's laughing. Yeah. Um, I don't know I why. Hear. Okay. I can hear that. Uh, so, for example, if a card split vertically, you know, it, on one side, let's say it's going to have a rabbit, on another side, it's going to have a bat or whatever, right? So, uh, you tuck one of those sides under the tree, so mm -hmm. it's not actually visible. And the other card is the card that you actually played. Uh, so each card must go under a tree. And there's some clever bits there, because some cards can only be placed to the right or left side of the tree. Some cards can only be placed above or below the tree, right? Uh, and each of these sides have their own individual costs and individual effects and individual scoring conditions. 
but the real clever meat happens in these two systems that makes the game really come alive and makes it very vibrant and interesting. Um, so one thing is that there is the forest clearing area, which I just call the forest shuffle area because it's like if you're gonna because the, because cars go there, right? Yeah. So it's it's like the forest shuffle, and it's the name of the game. I didn't I don't know why they like didn't call it. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't call it the forest shuffle area, but it's the forest clearing area. So whenever you discard a card in this game for any reason, you don't discard it to a discard pile. You discard it to the forest shuffle. Shuffle, yeah. <laughs> and it's just there, available for everyone to pick up. So there's this like aching decision space of like, okay, I want to play this card. Uh, so I need to pay other cards for it. But the cards I pay with, I'm going to have to discard cards. But if I discard the cards that are good for my opponent, then am I doing them a benefit? And then on top of that, there's also uh, types. So, you know, some will have like a autumn leaf on it mm. and some will have like a paw print on it or something like that, right? So if a, some cards have special abilities and if you, when you play them, when you pay for them, if you pay for them with the exact right type uh, of symbols mm -hmm. on the cards that you've paid for that card this is getting very convoluted then a special bonus effect will trigger and then the decision space really blooms because again you're not just trying to pay for cards but it's like which cards are you giving up which cards are going to help your opponent can i trigger these bonus abilities there's a lot of things happening but i think what's one of the most fun things about this game for me is that the effects themselves and like the the various abilities and and the triggers they're just very interesting they're more interesting than in games like earth or in games like wingspan or in games like arc nova even where i feel like everything is useful in some way and i can see a number of strategies that not only interact from like a mechanical standpoint but also from a narrative standpoint because they really thematically make a lot of sense yeah like like this bat is in my hand i really don't want this bat i'm gonna toss it into the forest and let someone else take it you mean like that yeah sure okay <laughs> all games are an abstraction elaine <laughs> there are some allowances we make for abstractions into the forest with these mushrooms well no it's just okay it doesn't behoof your environment <laughs> right so it goes lives in a different forest oh that's much nicer my, way of putting it yeah my forest right <laughs> okay yeah i uh i really like this game uh, i like the lagranja uh, mechanism of you have a card and it does different things depending on where you tuck it yeah uh and you might mess yourself up by tucking something under uh and revealing something else and you've tuck the thing under that actually you were saving to place yeah <laughs> and yeah, you go oh no oh no where did my fox go oh oh it's on the other side of the badger and i've tucked it under the thing to get the badger bonus oh no mm. um it this game doesn't do a lot it doesn't have many moving parts but what it does do it does incredibly well and incredibly smoothly and i think you are right like i think it comes back to that thing of 
just because games can do something, should they? Yeah. Right? Uh, so do do you need to add in all these other things and extra systems? Extra right? systems to, that you your brain has to work out and and keep track of. Yeah. Uh, whereas this, I mean, it it took me, I don't know, not long to read the rule book, 15, 10, 15 minutes to read the rule book. Something and like then that, we were yeah. playing. It was so quick um, to learn and to teach you, even though your brain was on fire and, <laughs> and you just kept running around the house for some reason. Um, it was really quick to teach and to learn. And uh, it was not long to play, but was it no it was about like 40 minutes or something like yeah, that. yeah you looked like you were going to disagree with me then because your eyes were no open. i just remembered the winter cards and how brilliant they uh -huh, were i really uh -huh, enjoyed those uh -huh. yeah yeah uh because you explain that yeah go on so the so the way the game ends is that basically the bottom part of the deck is stacked with pre-winter cards uh when one the is on top one is well. on top one yeah. is on top of the bottom third right and okay. then the other two are shuffled in randomly to that bottom third so when you draw the first one, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. When you draw the second one, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. When you draw the third one, the game ends immediately. Like no one gets an extra, like you don't even get to finish your action. That's yeah. it. The game ends. It's done, right? Count up. And Winter has come and that's what you've got in your forest. It's such a cool moment because when you draw the first one, you go, ooh, <laughs> you know, like a shiver runs down your spine. And then you draw the second one and, and you're like, really on the edge of your toes because it could end any moment mm -hmm. literally the next card and, draw and it did i kind of thought i'm just gonna see if i can get this this card to put in this place because that will give me an extra i don't know how many it was five points or something and it did it did not come out i just drew the winter card and the game ended immediately and i did not get those points i did mention that there's a lot of fun interactions on the cards and that they like kind of emboldened narrative and just to give an example of that there's for example uh a rabbit card mm -hmm. right and so the rabbit card just says oh it scores like a point or whatever right but you can stack multiple rabbits on this same one tree on this same one side and of course there's la rabbits on the left side and on the right side so sometimes you draw a rabbit on the right side and you've already got rabbits on the left side and you're like, oh, okay, that that's that rabbit's no good rabbit for me. Tree. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah, go away because I I don't want you. Uh, and so you can stack multiple rabbits, and one point is not a lot. Like if you're only getting one point from a card, that's not great, right? But then you have a fox, yeah. right? Yeah, it scores you two <laughs> points for every rabbit because of course the fox is gonna want to live in the forest with the rabbits, right? Yeah. <laughs> And then there's foxes that are on the left side and on the right side. And it's almost like they're made to live on the same tree. They don't have to. You can have, mm. like, multiple foxes and mm. you can have multiple rabbits, right? Because you have multiple trees. And, oh, it's just yeah, so much fun. Yeah, you don't have to have the same... The animals that interact with each other on the yeah. same tree. They just have to be generally in the forest. Mm. And there's a lot of... That's just, like, one very niche interaction between two specific cards mm. but cards interact in a lot of like parallel ways and and you can like kind of see yourself building different paths every game and see like the strategy trees and <laughs> and the the various <laughs> available you know kind of like combinations that you could do like oh i could go this way and that way and that way and sort of build like a smorgasbord of various different scoring conditions that you are going for mm. it's a lot of fun it's I, I it, had, sorry i I'm interrupted sorry, you no, go on. 
it reminded me a lot of Race for the Galaxy, but with an aesthetic, which we should talk about in like a moment, uh, and and presentation that was much more appealing to me. Mm, mm. It feels like a game that there wouldn't be a lot of interaction in because you're building your own forest, right? And you're just mm. looking at animals that work in your forest. But I held that chestnut tree card in my hand turn after turn after turn after turn. I didn't want to spend it because if I spent it, I would have put it in the clearing and you would have taken it and you were going for the chestnut tree strategy, which meant you wanted like seven chestnut trees and i would have given you something like nine points if i'd put that in the clearing so i just kept it in my hand until i drew another one i thought if i never draw another Mm. one or if i never get another one doesn't matter it'll Mm. just live in my hand Mm -hmm. but if i do that's some points so there's different strategies that come out as you're playing and, and what you're keeping back and what you're drawing and what you're placing in your forest um i wanted to get all the butterflies that was like the goal Mm. um but i did not get the last butterfly because you score points more points depending on how many different types of butterfly but i realized that you were also trying to do that so we were fighting over butterfly cards we were uh and that's the kind of funky part of the game as well uh you can kind of figure out that each card if if you place things well can score you like about four or five points mm. and sometimes it goes like really weird where it's like a card says oh hey this one scores 15 points if you have a bat in your forest yes. and it's it the card itself i can't remember what it was i think it was a squirrel or something like that you know and i'm like okay so i played this 15 points per card that's a lot right but then you play the bat and by itself the bat scores nothing unless you have three different bats <laughs> And so then you're like, okay, so now I'm on the bat game. And then you get the three different bats and then you go, oh, okay, these together will score me 15 points. And you go, wait a minute. So that's 30 points from four cards. Now I divide that by four. You know, Mm. it's still a good gain, Mm. right? Yeah. And it's kind of like, will I achieve multiples of these things that I'm gluing together? You know, will I get my butterflies? Will I get my chestnuts? Will I get my bats? Will I get my deer and wolves? Will I get my rabbits and foxes? <laughs> you know, th- th- will I go for the bonuses from the mushrooms? There's so many things yeah, happening sure. that you can glue in many different ways. And it's just, it's it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. What was cool, though, and I don't know if you agree with this, is so there are a lot of cards in this. Mm. You go through them very quickly, mm. right? Um, so it didn't feel like something like Ark Nova where you're, you're, you know, you're trying to get the, the second petting zoo animal or whatever and you just can't get it yeah. because you keep drawing and it's just not the card you want because you're building up different trees and you can place as many trees as you want. So you can start new kind of mini strategies mm. over and over and over again. So I never felt like I was waiting for a certain card to come out and just biding my time until it did. There was always something to do. That's because a lot of games like this try to have this unique selling point of every card is different mm. and unique and does something else. And you're like, 
okay, but does that make for a good deck mm. that you play cards from, you know? And Ark Nova does this. Like, all the cards mm. are, you know, completely different, I think. Where's the guinea pig? I really need the guinea pig! Yeah, and and this game is unafraid of having repeating cards, mm. but I think it's actually better for it because it allows you to make more consistent strategies yeah. and kind of understand what you're going for. Um it's very enjoyable in that regard. I do want to talk about the art because the art, hey, you know, every card is illustrated in this game, right? I don't know why people say that, oh, we just we just can't afford to hire. I don't know who says that. <laughs> I don't know who says that. But some people say we just can't afford to hire these artists. And here's this little game that I bought it for £23, uh-huh. right? Twenty-three fifty, I think, uh-huh. right? So there can't be much of a profit margin on it. No. But but all these cards have been beautiful, gorgeous illustrations. What a great job on making this game look incredibly attractive. You know? it's, it's, it's lovely. It's so lovely. It's so evocative of nature and the forest and the animals. Like it's just It's immersive, it right? Immersive, yeah, yeah. That's a good word. It feels it doesn't feel like you're in a forest, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it feels like you're in this setting. Yeah. It's really nice. As much as I like the illustration in Wingspan, and I they are gorgeous. I really, really enjoy all the birds in Wingspan. There's something about that kind of white border of the cards that makes it feel like removed. Do you know what I mean? Like you're you're one step away from enjoying this sort of like kind of bird watching experience because because the white border, yeah, I I, I see. And background, it's, it's more like a picture of a bird. Whereas whereas in this game, it's the animal. Even though the card is always split, so there's yeah. always two different animals. It's drawn within the forest setting. It's not like a photograph of an animal against a white background. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, you know, because that that white background makes me feel like I'm looking at this bird in a biology book than yeah, rather yeah, yeah, yeah. actually like building this environment for yeah. these birds, right? Uh-huh. Whereas with Forest Shuffle, you are actually, you know, kind of immersed in this idea of the game, right? Um, so I think because of its price, because of its accessibility, mm. because of how much fun it is to play, uh, I, I think this is like a top tier game, you know, I think it's really, really good. And I think it might be overlooked because of how small the box is. But I think Lookout Spiel has done just an absolutely fantastic job with this game, making it look great. Also, can I just mm. add, much like Earthborn Rangers, it comes uh, with no shrink wrap. Yeah, even the, the box. The green line. Yeah, green the green line. line. Yeah, of yeah. The box has no shrink wrap. The cards have no shrink wrap. They yeah. wrapped in paper, uh, and also I don't like. I'm gonna guess. I don't know, but I remember from our interview with Andrew Navarro, uh, he was talking about uh, FSC certified mm-hmm, paper. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is FSC certified paper, but the paper. On the cards, feels exactly like the Earthborn Rangers cards. I believe it is FSC certified uh, because that is part of the Green Line stamp. Oh, is it it's, really? Yeah, if it has that stamp, it means that it's it's certified paper. Yeah, so it's you know they they put they put their money where their mouth is. Mm. You know they they made a game that is sustainably produced, mm. is absolutely gorgeous to look at, plays like a dream, is a lot of fun, <laughs> is easy to get into, is cheap right Mm -hmm. i just you know top mark recommendations for me uh i had so much fun (laughs) 
still to come, we have Plant Anubo, but right now we have our interview with Sunny Lou. I would like to preface this interview just to give some context what the interview is about and also a few things that happened after the interview. So a few years ago, uh, Sunny Lou, who's a comic book artist and writer, has done a museum piece called 1819 Singapore, for which he created a fake board game uh, as a museum piece with the trappings of modern board game design uh, and also commissioned a video uh, for the museum installation uh, by Shut Up and Sit Down, uh, where Quinn's reviewed this game that doesn't exist. Uh, and, and that video was online because it was necessary for the museum installation that people could go and watch it at home, not necessarily being at the museum. And of course, board gamers saw, board gamers saw it and thought it was a real board game. Um, <laughs> Cut to some time later, uh, Sunny Lou is designing an actual board game with, with, with other people involved called 1819 Singapore, just like that previous game, <laughs> derived from that previous fake game. Um, uh, and I wanted to interview Sunny about that. And so we recorded an interview. Sometime after the interview uh, was recorded, uh, I got an email from Sunny saying he's no longer involved with the design of 1819 Singapore. So what you're hearing right now in this interview is me not knowing that this is the case. And, and I think that makes the interview slightly more interesting. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to stop this preface now. I'm just going to cut to the interview. Please enjoy 1819 Singapore. Delighted to welcome to the show Sunny Liu. Sunny is known for illustrating comic books, including many illustrations for Marvel and DC, but also writing comic books like Malinky Robot and the Eisner award-winning The Art of Charlie Chan Hok Chai, uh, a comic book that upset Singapore's government so much it withdrew its funding for, and I quote, retelling of Singapore's history, which, which potentially undermines the authority or legitimacy of the government. But today, sadly, we won't be undermining governmental legitimacies. We'll be talking cardboard. So, Sunny, before we go into perhaps the most metafictional board game ever created, uh, I wanted to find out more about your relationship to games. Uh, how long have they been a part of your life? Uh, well, thanks for having me on this podcast, Epka. I've been a fan of the MPI YouTube channel for quite a while. So I think that's one of the reasons why I got got back into board games. I think as a kid, of course, I played things like Monopoly, Risk, and Cluedo with my family and friends. Um, but then I think I, I kind of left that behind for quite a long time until I suppose videos about board games start to appear on my YouTube feed for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I realized that they had you know, changed and developed and grown a lot. And that's when I, I bought my first modern board game, which was probably Pandemic, I think. So what was your reaction to Pandemic? Did it feel like something incredibly different or did it feel like, oh yeah, this is something like that uh, always felt like it belonged to me or something like that? I don't know. It, it did feel very fresh, right? I think that uh, the, the changes that, I mean, the, the development of games since my early teenage years to what, what I was seeing in, in modern board games felt like uh, they, they had, you know, gotten rid of a lot of the problems that early board games had, like, you know, players being eliminated early, uh, too much luck involved and, and things like that. And, mm -hmm. and especially even the cooperative element was new to me at the time, right? So I, I think um, it made me semi-obsessed with board games for quite a long time. And I, I went with this phase that I think a lot of board games people go through where I, would buy every game that I could get my hands on for, uh, <laughs> uh, and then they have to call in, 
figure out how to get in the game, sell them, you know, that, so that was the, yeah. I mean, I, I still buy board games once in a while, although I try not to given the amount of games I have that are unplayed right now in my collection. Is there a particular moment you know, either either with modern board games or with like from your childhood that like you can identify as something incredibly memorable. Is there something that like, was there an evening that really left an impression on you? I look back at my childhood days. I mean, those memories are quite vague, right? So I just kind of remember playing with my sister, my aunts, my parents. Uh, and those are fond memories, but I, I couldn't really tell you much about them in detail. Mm -hmm. uh, in my teenage years, I did. I think we did play Axis and Allies, right? I think that was the point, the last uh, phase of my board game um, experience until uh, much more recently. And and those games were really long. You know, Axis and Allies like a three four hour game, right? Yeah. So my, my friends, and I would be sat around the table and playing it all day long. And I think those were memorable for being so dragged out <laughs> but still fun at some level right i think those games were yeah uh and, and more recently i think it, it was just the sense of interaction the sense of having friends around and playing a game and you know the trash talking the competitiveness but also the sense of uh camaraderie i think in, in the experience that, that i i always want to it's almost like a, a high you get and you want to kind of recreate it when you think if I buy a new game i can I have to experience again. Uh, if I play the same game again, I will have that you know communal communal experience. Uh, so yeah, I, it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but I think just in general, it's this feeling of uh, you know having a good time with friends. To pivot a little bit, Singapore eighteen nineteen, the exhibition. What was mm -hmm. it? How did it come about? And why did you do it? So that's kind of a long story. I, I think it started when. Well, I mean, it started when he, this, this art space here in Singapore called Temengong Art in Residence. And I think they typically do uh, residencies with artists from other countries. Um, but this time around, they invited a bunch of us local artists to take part in a group exhibition. And there, there weren't many constraints. All, all they wanted was the some kind of thematic link to the idea of Temengong. Right, which is uh, a Malay title given to um, one of the Malay leaders. It's sort of a, a generalship where the person who's in charge of the Navy and security and uh, um, for the Sultan, the king of uh, the area. Uh, and so I think the other people, they did prints, they did paintings and sculptures. But I had been, partly because I've been so obsessed with games for, for quite a long time, I had this idea in my mind that I wanted to create a, uh, I want to call it a fictional board game, if that makes sense. Okay. In the sense that it, it wasn't a real game that we play tested, but uh, we wanted to make it look real, right? That you could, you would, when you went to the exhibition, you would see this board laid out with miniatures and cards and everything. And uh, as a way for me, I think, to explore, you know, colonialism in Singapore, right? The British came in 1819 and, and uh, the, the legacy is still with us today, obviously. And for me, this was just a way to get use board games as a way to tell a narrative about that experience. Um, and, and I think that stemmed from sort of my own feelings about board games that there were some board games that made you think about the team that they were built around, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think like I remember MPI did a podcast on colonialism and board games, and that was something that I, I had watched. Though, although I think that was probably after or during the process, so it wasn't the spark, but it, it was part of our. Mm. When I say our, I mean it wasn't just me involved in the project. Um, my partner Xingxian and a bunch of friends of mine were all involved in making this uh, thing together. I remember you sending me pictures of the exhibition, and one of them just had this little table in the corner and on that table very conspicuously placed were archipelago and puerto rico just sort of casually like you know like they're just there and 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 it it felt in in a certain way like very pointed but at the same time like if if i look at the other pictures of of the exhibition it, it, it felt like it fit the scene very well uh can you tell me a little bit more about like why you decided to uh, place those other games there? Is it to contextualize that, like, hey, the, the, these are real board games and they do look like that uh, and they exist? Or I, I suppose to some degree. I mean, we, we chose those games to display there partly because they, they were other games about uh, colonialism, right? Although ultimately it became a bit of an afterthought, I would say, because we didn't put any signs up, we didn't have any descriptions of those games. Uh, on site, so if you didn't know what you were about, you probably might not have uh, thought too much about them. But but that was partly, I guess, a constraint of time and resources. Right? We we didn't have uh, the time to make everything fit in exactly the way we wanted to. So so those board games are placed there. I think if you knew board games, and you know those games, you would have got something out of it. But uh, the focus was, I guess, really the, the fake board game as well as the video we were playing in the background uh, and this is I think that's how we got in touch in the first place when I approached NPI to possibly do a fake video review of 1819 mm-hmm. uh, in the end we only had enough time and money to get one from shut up and sit down right and so uh, Quinn did, did a very good fake review of our game for the exhibition I, I, I remember watching that video but more importantly I remember uh, the day when people discovered that this video exists and a lot of people didn't realize that this was part of a muse- museum exhibition, you know, and that they, th- they thought it was real. Uh, how did you feel about people responding to it like that? A little bit, a little bit conflicted, I think, at the end of the day, right? Because mm-hmm. um, my, my own work, like the book you mentioned just now, Ala Charlie Chan, is also place some of the same ideas uh, in that it's a uh, actual history of Singapore, but told through the lens of a fictional comic artist. Right? So, so it creates this fictional uh, career of an artist who does comics about Singapore, but all, all those comics are, are made up by myself. And mm. uh, But at the same time, it's exploring the real history of Singapore. And when that book came out, I think some pe- most people got that it was fictional, but some people thought it was real. Right, so I remember at our first um, book launch, he, someone came up to us at the end and said, where, where is Charlie Chan? Like, why is he not here at his, his own book launch? <laughs> right, so he explained that he was fictional. Um, and in the case of this 1819 board game, you kind of want the, person, the people who think that it's real, like people who go to the exhibition that think that it's a real game, a real review. Um, but at the same time, it was a little bit problematic in that I think especially for Shut Up, Sit Down, right? For them to yeah. do a project like this, it implied that they were willing to 
make a fake review about games. And, and we, had, we had to sort of like walk the line between making it seem real at the same time, making it clear that it wasn't a real game and that uh, it wouldn't indicate shut up, sit down in any controversies. I mean, I, 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 I imagine at the time maybe it was stressful, but I, I, I think like looking back on it, it, people probably understand the intention, you know? Like there's something about games, I think already, that is metafictional within themselves because, you know, when when we sit down, you know, to play let's say like some sort of a licensed property you know like 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 a board game based around a video game or a movie or whatever you know we enact a part of that media but at the same time we know it's not that media you know we're 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 sort of like play acting in a way was was there any part of that sort of metafictionality of of games that make made it particularly ripe i guess for for making it an exhibition of a of a kind of a fake board game presenting itself as a real board game. I think it did, in the sense that, you know, when you play a board game, like you say, it could play out in many different ways, right? I mean, they're the, the constraint of the rules, constraint of uh, the themes, but, you know, for example, who answer the winner in the game depends on the, the players and, and each game, right? So uh, in the context of 1819 and Singapore, um, I, I guess what we were I was we were trying to explore was the idea of whether you could create a board game where the colonized could play with the colonizers in a way that was balanced, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, if you look at a lot of board games, I think you either play one one of the other two one of the two sides, right? Because yeah. um, even even Pax Premier, I think you play the warlords, but you don't get you don't get to play the British or the Russians simply because uh, it creates a kind of asymmetry that's hard to resolve, right? Like, if you want to have accuracy, you would make the colonizers much more powerful than the colonizers, and then how do you create a game that works for both sides? Um, and I think the opposite would be Spirit Island, where you play the, you know, the gods, uh, yeah. deities in an island fighting of colonizers. Uh, so, so within this fictional game, we could suggest that there was a way of balancing it, right? So we get, I remember two versions of the game where one was the historically correct version where the colonizers did have military superiority over the uh, locals. And then another version of it where you can get the special cards that were essentially mytholog mythological creatures, right? Like the giant lion fish creature that could help balance the military power on, on the two sides. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering the question clearly, but I, th I think it, it gave us a chance to explore historical possibilities, right? So I think when you look at history, we think that this is what happened and uh, the constraints on all sides compel people to act in a certain way and, and there are certain results. Uh, so I think we were hoping that within the board game structure, we could suggest uh, different possibilities, right? different historical uh, events that could have happened. Uh, you know, we do certain constraints, but I think uh, trying to see what actions could be possible within something that was close to reality. Was there a certain freedom within, you know, making something that wasn't actually intended to be played, but it 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 looked like you know it could be played was was there a certain freedom to take like you know artistic liberties with the idea of a board game uh or or how did you how close did you try to keep it to something that was you know 
could potentially be played by people? I think it was clear to us that uh, we were skipping a huge step in not playtesting, right? Mm. So the, the the lack of a need to playtest and make the game workable as a whole made it a lot easier to create this thing, right? Because if we did try to playtest it, it would take you know, years or months to make a, a viable board game. So what, all we had to do was take mechanics and systems that from games we had played and, and sort of cobble them, cobble them together uh, without having to worry about balancing or flow or you know, turn order or anything like that. So that, that made it a lot easier, right? So we were just focused on the design of the game as well as you know uh, flavor text and uh, sort of the, the narrative that we want to tell, right? So through, through the video and through uh, museum science uh, text and all that. So, yeah, it, it was a, a lot more, a lot easier, right? Because I'm not sure if you know that we have tr been trying to make it into real board games ever since. That was yeah. going to be my next question, yeah. You are trying to make it real, right? Can I ask why? So I, I think the reactions we got at the exhibition was that a lot of people who saw it were asking us, I wish this was real, right? I wish I could actually play this game. It looks compelling, it looks interesting. Uh, it tells an interesting part of our history. I, I wish we could play it. And, and my friends and I, I guess we thought that we should we should try to do it. Like, and there was there was enough there that we wanted to try to make it the real game. And so we spent uh, the next year or so play testing it and seeing how it would work. And and the first version was terrible, right? So we used the existing rules, it just didn't didn't work at all. Uh, and, and so we've been trying the last. I think almost about two years now trying to make it workable. Um, and I think we, we got to a stage where it was quite fun, but uh, and, and that's when we got in touch with the world, world leads, right? Cole and uh, his mm -hmm. brother. And in the playtest, they, they enjoyed it enough to sort of engage us to potentially work with us for the final version. But the, after several playtests, I think I mean, we, we realized that they were underlying issues that we, we weren't fixing, right? We were introducing new mechanics of, to address problems that were sort of teething, and uh, it just made the game more complicated without actually addressing fundamental uh, problems. And so we, we kind of had to go back and revamp you know, the systems. And, and so we're kind of in this new stage now where we're trying to play test those new systems again, right? Uh, mm. So in, in a way, we thought we were closer to the end than we really were. And we had to go backwards too. So, um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more what it was like diving headfirst into designing a board game? But not just, I guess, designing a board game, but effectively, you know, designing something on a framework of of, of something that wasn't in necessarily intended to be played. I, I suppose the, the second part of it isn't crucial. I mean, it it does kind of constrain us to a small degree in the sense that we really have miniatures, right? We have miniatures. We have certain things that we produce and, and we still try to make sure that those things fit into the game right mm. uh whereas if we had it maybe we would just say you know this game doesn't miniatures at all given how it's going so let, let's forget about it whereas now i think with certain visual certain uh elements that have been produced we do feel uh some kind of comp compulsion to include them in the final version of the game um but beyond that i i don't think it constrains us that much because I would suppose that all game design start with an idea, a, some kind of thematic uh, sort of design. And so those would exist in, in any board game uh, development. 
but yeah, the, the process itself is, is been, I mean, none of us involved uh, have produced case before, right? Mm. And, and and so it's been a, a huge learning process for all of us in, in terms of how to make board games. Let, let, let's live in a world where, you know, all the work has been done, right? It, mm. it's, it's done, it's ready, you're potentially happy with it, you know, but it's finished. Um, what do you hope people take away from it? So I, I think there are probably two separate audiences we're looking at. One is within Singapore and one is, you know, internationally. Uh, and within Singapore, I guess we hope to, well, aside from the game being fun, enjoyable, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that people who play it should have a new perspective on our history, right? I, th- I think our... Singapore's wrestling with colonialism has been ongoing. It's been sometimes controversial. Uh, I think we're one of the few few countries that embrace our colonial past when we found independence. Whereas I think most countries um, rejected colonialism, taught our statues. We did, uh, Singapore government deliberately held onto those uh, things in order to assure investors and foreign countries that Singapore was not going to change too much, that we would continue continue to be business and investment friendly right so um i think a couple of years before before the project it was our bicentennial 200 years of singapore history and that was probably the first time that there, there began to be a conversation about the colonial past right uh in the sense that it, it has i think initially been supposed to celebrate you know 200 years but eventually morphed into a uh a different kind of history, right? In a sense, I think it, it, there was a shift in focus to Singapore being not just 200 years from British colonization, but a 700-year history that located Singapore within a longer history of the region, right? So you look back, back, back into its uh, past as a, a port that existed well before the British were here. And, and I think 1819, to some level, would be trying to contribute to that conversation a little bit. Uh, and giving people a chance to play those roles out, playing Malay Rajas, Malay Chiefs, or British Asians, and getting to experience maybe the constraints that they faced and the choices that were available to them. Uh, and therefore, um, you know, by playing an active role, perhaps uh, have a better sense of at least our version of what history was like. Mm. Do you think games are... Um well equipped to have these conversations like as as a medium to some level i i think it does um uh, how do i explain this well this is this was sort of my conceit at the beginning right that when you play a game as a medium uh if you watch a movie you watch a play you read a comic um i think the underlying structures of those mediums are not immediately revealed to you because you are following the story following the narrative um, whereas in board games, the before you can play it, you have to learn the rules, right? So mm-hmm. in a way, the underlying mechanics, the underlying assumptions are being revealed to you as you learn the rules. So in that sense, I think there could be a way of arguing that um, it gives you an insight into what the designer intends, what the designer thinks is relevant to a, you know, you call it a simulation of a given period, a given scenario. And that possibly could mean that uh, it exposes sort of the ideology behind it more than other mediums uh, right at the get-go, right? Because I think eventually any medium will will review its ideology, but 
with board games, potentially the rules need to be learned means that it starts earlier in the process. One of the things I noticed about games is actually like, um, and, and this isn't always true because sometimes intentions are pretty clear, uh, but very often, um, you know, games cast you as almost like a neutral agent within, uh, especially board games, within within like a given setting, you know? And it's like, it, it's it's your choice how you're going to go, you know? Are you going to be, you know, for this side or that side? And sometimes I think, you know, it's it's very hard to uh, to pick apart like the intention of the author and when they're where they're going with this. Did you did you have to use like any any if you did, what was it? You know, something to make your intention slightly more overt, uh, you know, with with what you're trying to say about Singapore with your game. So I, I think you're right. I think that possibility of mechanics showing ideology is probably a choice. I think there's one designer who's very explicit about his ideology, right? Everyone criticizes uh, the Pax guy, what's his name? Uh, Phil Eklund? Phil Eklund, right? right. So he's very explicit about it. But I think you're right that that the designer has a choice in making those choices explicit or whether it's sort of hidden or even unconscious, subconscious within the game itself. Um, it, but in terms of getting across the message that we're trying to convey, I think it was probably primarily through the video that we had clicked on a large screen at, at the exhibition. So we spoke to Quinn's explaining the what the experience was about, and he had to craft a you know fictional review that could be watched. I think within ten minutes uh, in the exhibition, so you could kind of process what was going on, and it was put on YouTube as well for people to go watch it at home later on if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think a lot of the messaging was was embedded within that, that video. Yeah, because I mean, you, you can't since you can't play the game, you can't possibly experience the gameplay and all those things. So you had to rely on the, the video to explain the ideas that we were trying to explore. I look forward to seeing more of Singapore 1819 when it appears uh, it as, a, as a real as a real board game. You know, almost like Pinocchio. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anton. Let's talk about our last game of this episode. Plantanubo comes from publisher The Game Builders by designers Mike, Odie and Uwe Rosenberg. Mike Keller, Odie and Uwe Rosenberg. It said Mike on the box. Okay. (laughs) On Board Game Geek, they're listed as Mike Keller, yeah, but on the box it says Mike, Odie and Uwe Rosenberg. (laughs) I see. Love it. Um, what I don't love is Plantanubo, sadly. Mm. Uh, so much in the theming of this episode, it is set in a solar, oh, well, oh. in a solar punk setting. Oh. Uh, and um, the idea is that, again, post-apocalyptic in a sense uh, that, you know, there was a catastrophe, some sort of climate catastrophe. And then after that, people have learned to live with nature. And uh, in this case, on giant trees that sprouted up. And then people build basically tree houses and then extract oxygen. Uh, mm-hmm. You get oxy points. Uh, but, you know, theming aside, and I, by the way, I just don't want to kind of brush it aside because it's very clear that a lot of work has gone into the theming of this game. There's uh, fictional narrative like uh, the oxygen specialist yeah that that's tied around it there's there's uh i believe like an anthology series but it's in german 
so to the best of my knowledge it's in german so i haven't actually read it yeah we read the very first page of that little booklet that came in yes. the box because uh, google translate uh, helped us read that and it, it sounded you know thematic yes um but again i'm not going to base my impressions on <laughs> google translate no, yeah uh so all of that aside this this is a game that i don't think does a good a good job evoking that narrative mechanically like you know art wise and setting wise clearly a lot of work has been put in there uh but mechanically I found this game quite hard going and I know I'm not the only one. I know that the critical response to this so far has been, you know, strained, I think would be the best description. And so we're not having like a hot take here or anything, but there are a lot of systems in this game. And actually in a podcast setting, I would struggle to begin to describe those systems. But the general premise is that, uh, two kind of well three main systems interact one there is a uh polyamino building puzzle so you lay polyamino tiles on your personal board it's a very small grid that is like half of it is blocked off at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the game if not more by boulders you have to clear via special actions but basically you can put polyamino tiles these tiles represent flowers So, for example, a red tile will make red flowers, which are red cubes, right? Now, you want to clear these flowers. So when you build the tile, it populates it with cubes. Now, these cubes you don't want because you want to actually ship away to these flowers for, like, uh, basically recipe delivery kind of mechanism (laughs) where, like, there's tiles that have demand for various colors of flowers. You know, what have you got? Can you ship them away? Uh, if yes, good, you get rid of these flowers, right? And then... And then, because you have now space on these tiles that you've built on your board, you can build another tile on top of those tiles. which are Which are forest tiles, which will then give you income. And then, after that, you will get to flip that tile, which will then provide you endgame points. So there's, like, four tiers <laughs> of tile building, of one on top of another, on top of another, and that has a kind of recipe delivery mechanism you know that that interacts with that now when you deliver these recipes you get energy which is another mechanism because you have this like energy track around your board and every time you get energy you move the die around the energy track and then on the energy track there's also cards that give you special abilities and then once the energy die goes past those cards it powers those cards up and let you use them or makes them more efficient depending on what card it is, right? But also you can upgrade the energy track so when you pass these cards you get victory points on top of that as well. Uh, But also all of that interacts with the action selection mechanism where uh, you have these four tools and what action you want to do Uh, depends on where you place them so if i place my blue tool between two tiles i can do an action on one of these two tiles but now no other players can place a blue tool that is adjacent to either of those two tiles and then on top of that i might be able to activate both of these tiles but that's if i got enough robot points which are another mechanism that interacts with all of the systems but how do you get points efka 
Um, I just got points in this game. Well, various ways, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's not actually for like a a, a a many mechanisms pointsality type euro. It it doesn't have a lot of opportunities to score it's points. Not massively high points. No, scoring, no it's it? it's quite tight in that regard, and I think that is a design trope that is. Um, endemic to Mike Keller and mm. uh, Odie Designs because uh, they, together, I believe, they designed uh, La Granja, uh, which we've covered previously, uh, uh, and quite enjoyed that game. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also Cooper Island, I think that's Odie's design as well. Uh, so it's, it's neither of those are like massively point-scoring games. You, you are trying to be efficient. I think my problem with this isn't... I, I, I know I lampooned the expansiveness of the mechanisms, and I apologize uh, for that. It, it's it's an easy target, but actually, like, a lot of the mechanisms in this game are, are very interesting. I, I think they're... In, in, a, in a time where many of the Euros just glue different mechanisms that you've seen before in slightly different ways, it feels like this is fresh and innovative right because it has a lot of different ideas and it it melds them in interesting and new ways and and that's good i just felt like there were so many things happening at the same time that you had to consider quite a few things happening but the impact of what you do never felt that great it felt like the game was very frugal with um, you know, changing the game state much. I did enjoy, what I did enjoy about the game is the constant sense that I'm just not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I need to be more efficient with my actions. I didn't plan well. And I think for people who, out of their Euro games, if they want like this sense of, I could really be doing a lot better and I could be a lot more efficient with this. And if that's all they want, you know, I think this game could be pretty good because I imagine it has a lot of replayability and it has a lot of variability as well because it feels like with so many different, you know, uh, power-up cards that let you do special bonus actions and so many kind of different ways that you can strive for different goals, th there is just an enormous amount of different ways that this game can shake out, right? However, what happens in the game never excited me at any point you know i didn't i didn't feel like oh i'm gonna do this thing and it's gonna really you know turn things around this turn is the good one right there you never felt like you had the good turn I, I had turns that were impactful but nothing particularly interesting happened right mm -hmm. gears moved mm -hmm. a lot of gears moved mm -hmm. and and they were churning right and sometimes but the dumbbell never fell out the machine. Yeah, 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 yes. Sometimes the gears really moved a lot, but but the gumball just was not coming out. And I recognize that this is a very individual kind of experience and reaction to your Euro game because some people will the gumball will be different for different people. Mm -hmm. But but for me, that gumball never came out, right? <laughs> With stringing out this analogy. <laughs> uh, I like this game more than you, I think. Uh, mm. Because I didn't mind the fact that... Like, once I realised that everything that you did in this game is incremental and that there wasn't necessarily going to be that, like, build up, build up, build up, build up, massive payoff turn. Mm. Um, 
free because uh, I thought I was playing it wrong. I thought, why am I not getting that? Like, why am I not getting the dopamine here? <laughs> you know, yeah, why yeah, am yeah, I yeah. not getting this big turn where everything comes up Millhouse? You know, but um, but neither were you. And mm. I thought, okay, well maybe it's the game. Like as we played more, I thought maybe it's just not something that necessarily happens. Mm. And and what did happen a couple of times was I had planned really well for flower deliveries. So mm. so I'd taken the tile that gave me the flowers that I didn't have yet on my board, and then I could the uh, next turn deliver like three flowers and fill up a. Um, flower delivery slot and get all the bonuses from that like the extra point bonus and all the energy uh, bonuses that you get from that so there were a couple of turns where although it wasn't like a, a massive payout turn mm. it did something and and I quite enjoyed that and I I enjoyed the it wasn't massively swingy either. Like it wasn't like you were doing this and this and this and, th and you were taking things away or I was doing that. And the other player was like, I'll get a resource or whatever. You know, you were always doing something that added to your energy or it was just balancing. Do I want to get robot points? Do I want to get energy points? Can I like, have you taken the spot that I really wanted to go to? Mm. Um, what is the action color that is going to be left over that is going to, give me the bonus at the end. Because yeah, because the tool that you didn't use, there's a bonus as well, depending exactly. on that. Yeah. This yeah, so there's a lot to think about. And you're right. It's like, it's, it's like a puzzle. It's a real puzzle. Like if I move this gear will this gear move or will this one move? Mm. Uh, and, and if that one moves, what happens next? You know, it, I, I didn't mind that at all. I, it wasn't the best game that I've ever played. But I, I think I liked it a lot more than you. I think I would have liked it if there were maybe one or two ideas less in it. I, it was very busy. I think it, it was, was very busy. It was too busy for me. And in that regard, like I, I, do, I wouldn't have minded if the payoff wasn't that big. Mm. If there were just a few less systems to constantly churn through and think about. Because, you know, like I was like, okay, what do I want to achieve this round? Because there's four rounds in the game. Okay, I would like to build a forest and not just a tiny one, maybe a slightly bigger one. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, just the number of incremental steps it, it took me to get to the space where, like, okay, I've achieved my one goal of building this one forest tile was enormous. And I think the problem that I have is, first of all, you can't plan too much in this game apart from broad strokes mm -hmm. because... Because you never know what tiles are going to get blocked off by other players, mm -hmm. especially in a higher player count mm -hmm. game. Uh, even though there's more space, I still think you can end up with just like tiles blocked off. Okay, so you can't plan too much because you, your spaces that you want to go to for actions might be, you know, taken away from you. But also you have to have like a big picture of like what you're trying to achieve. Sure. And because of the number of incremental steps, if you mess up one of these steps, <laughs> your whole round plan just goes out the window. You go, right, okay, well, I did a, a bunch of things that amounted to nothing because I made one tiny mistake here or there and the whole Rube Goldberg machine just, you know. Collapsed. Yeah. 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 The domino did not fall down. Mm. so the wheel didn't spin yeah, exactly no, i understand yeah and i i think i mean that's the same with a lot of euros though like you you mess up a turn and it messes up your plan i i think it's 
how many mess up points there are that bo- <laughs> that bothers me, right? right? The, the, there's just how a- many opportunities there are to, to yeah. do it wrong. I mean, there's only twelve turns in the entire game yeah but there's like 17 different systems right (laughs) yeah for sure i kind of ignored the forests entirely i I just i got them because at some point you're you're probably gonna get a forest Mm -hmm. right so i i didn't concentrate on that i mean you still did win the game by not that many points that you weren't a runaway winner no i Um, think like five points but I never felt what you felt about building up the forests that like what Mm. i was doing was kind of like churny like chuggy mm. um so i don't know if that's just the the strategy is just more lengthy i don't know i don't know maybe maybe i, I think you were focusing on the energy track and making yourself more efficiently run around it and collect points that way yeah you know I, and I'll, I'll give this game the kudos it deserves there's a lot of different approaches in how you can you know try and win and mm. you know little different different strategies you can combine there's there's a lot of innovation happening you know it's not an elegant puzzle in (laughs) any sense of the word you know just it's it just isn't right it's very busy it it is incredibly busy and it is in it's i don't want to use the word overwrought but it is at least wrought (laughs) you know um which of these plates do i let crash to the ground yeah it's not even like trying to keep them all spinning you're just like which ones do i just abandon yeah but but i think my chief complaint is that it too often for me felt like work uh-huh. and uh-huh. not fun you know and I, I, that's that's just a tricky balancing thing with euros sometimes they can mm. feel like that mm. um but uh, once again kudos to uh you know the production the artwork looks nice i think uh, I think it's nice that we're having all these green themed games mm-hmm. and 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 in some cases pushing for green production as well. So I think uh, this is a, a first time, even though these are not first time designers, this is a first time publisher. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, uh, not everyone can achieve the lofty goals of no plastic in their game. So mm-hmm. this is the one game in this episode that isn't that. But still, you know, Would thematically. Shrink wrapped? Uh, yes, yeah. I, I believe they were. Yeah, but. It, it's it's still going for that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. for that sort of green theme and i think that's really nice um but i don't like how you've already messed up the world and now these things are saving it <laughs> that's that's not like you know like in forest shuffle like you're trying to preserve the state of the forest or in forest strangers you're trying to preserve the, yeah. the natural state of the forest and the earth and this is like well you've messed it up already too late well no but that's that's kind of like the solar punk genre in a of nutshell course. you know i like i like that they're very green themed and i like this new kind of direction mm-hmm. that games are going in and i thought it would be nice to have an episode that focused uh, on all of that uh and you know elevated it this wasn't my favorite euro this is by far not the worst euro i've ever played you know like uh somewhere in the middle uh i found it a bit too laborious but it was all right that's all the games. If you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com, or if you have any general questions or comments. Justin asks this about contentification. Do you think this has actually made games worse for play or maybe just more expensive and wasteful? That's the first question. There's another one. I think that yes. <laughs> um... And and to I guess elaborate a little bit, 
I think it affects the design and goes back to the first uh, email you read out in the episode where it, it affects the design, but it also affects the production where if, if the design, you know, has to account for like all the eventualities of a potential buyer, right? Then it also, um, you know, kind of the design needs to make space for all of that. And I, I guess a good analogy would be like, um, why isn't there a car that is also a boat and also an airplane, right? You know, because it's not very efficient at being all free, right? It, it, it can't be good at doing all of those. We buy a car because we need to get around, you know? We buy a boat only because we need to get across a river, right? How many times do you go across, like, a longer river? Not across, a longer river, right? Mm. How many times do you go a longer river, not many times. How many times do you ro use roads? All the time, right? It depends who you are. So, so buying buying a car that is also a boat would be so expensive and inefficient uh -huh. that they just don't make those. Uh -huh. Well, well I mean, okay, they they do niche, exist, but but no niche. one really buys them, <laughs> no. right? Um, no one needs a hovercraft, and it's very bad at getting across roads, right? Well, so, yeah. um. So, you know, that's why they don't really exist predominantly, right? Because it's much better to just buy a car and, you know, pay for a boat trip if you need one mm -hmm. or a ferry or trip. Or take a bus or and take... then take a boat trip, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right? So I don't need the the thing to get me all the way there. I can take a boat and then take a bus at the other end. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So if, if you apply this analogy to board games, there's a reason why you don't make a board game for everything yeah mm. because it won't excel at any of the things and the good part of it will suffer mm. right so a it makes the games more expensive and more wasteful in terms of production and b it hampers down the design space they also ask what role do expectations play in enjoying a game do you play games with low expectations of enjoyment i know i enjoy books or movies more when i have lower expectations of them in contrast i generally have a high expectations of games i play since i have spent time researching and then money buying them i ask because you didn't enjoy vindication which is a certain reviewer's favorite game and as such probably began playing the game with high expectations I don't really know who the aforementioned reviewer is. Well, they did mention them in the email, but I, I chose to redact okay. that. Well, well, you can tell me after. Okay, the, I will. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no idea. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I, honestly, I try to not have a lot of expectations. A lot of the times, if we pick up a game that's not, like, new, right, mm -hmm. then it will be kind of based on word of mouth and you know general interest and you know uh, what drives me there is like well we should probably have a look at this you know just just to keep up with the kids you know uh and and other times it is that general interest of like hey you know this is coming out this looks exciting let's see what it is i i try not to get too hyped up about things sometimes i do like i had pretty high expectations of a couple of games this year and i had pretty low expectations of a couple of games this year and there were moments where they surprised me a lot and then there were moments where the ones where i had high expectations for disappointed me and you kind of have to internally outweigh that uh but, but 
but I guess if the question is, is, is this something we consider and think about? The answer is yes. You know, but does it happen often? The answer is no. I learned my lesson about not having too high expectations uh, with Blackout Hong Kong. I had I was so looking forward to that game. I was so excited about that game. And then it wasn't a good game. And from that point, I have never wanted to have too high expectations of any game. It just is. Does this look like you said, you know, does this look mm. interesting? Does this look like it does something different? Does it look fun? OK, let's have a go. Yeah, I think the culprit here is the volume. We go through more games than an average board game enthusiast does. Sure. Because, because it's, it's just the nature of the job, right? <laughs> um, th- we really go through quite a lot. And and I think if if we had high expectations, it would be a recipe for a disaster. We would get disappointed too much and mm-hmm. our job would become too arduous and, 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 and not fun anymore. But it also, I think it skews your bias yeah let's say that if you are looking forward to a game very much then you are priming yourself to enjoy that game more even if it's not that good because you've built it up in your head uh or if you know if there is a game that you think oh this looks this doesn't look very good then we probably won't even look at it yeah honestly because yeah. because like you said you know we have so many games that we have to get through if there isn't enough time then we probably won't even have a look at it. With the rare exception that sometimes you just want it to be good. Like, you kind of, you know it's probably not going to be, but you kind of hope that it is. <laughs> like what? I don't know. Like Lords of Ragnarok, for example, right? Like, I kind of hoped that it would be good, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I, re- yeah, I really true. had this, like, little, like, hey, I really wish, you know, there was... You know, something here that sparked something. But, but again, just that's wasn't. looking at it in a different way. Like, mm. you you want it to be good. You think it might do something interesting or different or, mm. or fun. You allow it that chance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You you give it, like, the opportunity to surprise you. But then if it doesn't, it doesn't. You know? That's just the way it is. Thank you so much for listening. And finally, Efka, what is the game of the episode and what will be on the bonus episode this week? Ooh, okay. So uh, the game of the episode is Forest Shuffle with a caveat. I will say that Earthborn Rangers with more plays has the potential to maybe really blossom into something, right? So tentatively Forest Shuffle. I agree. On the bonus episode, we are not green. We are, in fact, wasteful. We will be talking about Dead Reckoning, which does have a lot of plastic, but it's also (laughs) surprisingly a game we've enjoyed quite a bit. So if you want to tune in for that, uh, we'll be discussing Dead Reckoning. We've also got a couple of button shy games we're going to take a look at, uh, specifically uh, Revolver Noir, which is a board game implementation of an old video game called Spy vs. Spy. Not official, right? <laughs> but the spirit is there. And also Mint Julep, which is a horse racing game. And as you know, we, we like a horse racing game, even though we don't like the horse racing. If you want to get access to the bonus episode, all you need to do is subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash no point included. You can give us a little bit of money every month, and every time there's a main episode, you will also get a bonus episode. And with that, why don't you say goodbye to horse racing, Elaine? Goodbye to horse racing, Elaine. Goodbye to horse racing, Elaine. <laughs>